This is the Collection Public Art Podcast. I'm Roxandra Bajak. Last episode, we looked at things that make public art public. We discussed the site-specific and the site-general, and today we're getting more into site. We're talking location, location, location. Talking context. Because with site-specific public art, the context, the story of it, and history of it is hugely to do with the location, and is often a large part of what makes the work specific. So, does knowing the story and the context of the location matter? Do we want to know it? Can we appreciate public art by itself without knowing what makes it site-specific? And what happens when we don't just think about the work out of context, we literally relocate it? This podcast is supported by the University of Edinburgh's main library, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, where connections come alive. Share your favorite memories through text, photos, and or video of your time at the library by tagging at Ed Uni Libraries using the hashtag UOELib50 on Facebook and Instagram. Of course, a lot of this, the wanting to know or not, is preference in particular. So if you don't want to know the background of any of our public art, you may want to skip this episode. Some people love stories and explanations, some people just want a thing to be a thing. Some stories are really wonderful, and you become thankful that an object has taught you this history, and some stories, some explanations, may disappoint us. But can we just ignore the story altogether? To start this whole discussion, I'm going to have to do another crash course, this time in art for art's sake. Because when we talk about just looking at an object without thinking about the inspiration, the meaning, the political commentary, the backstory, when we are just concerned with the beauty of it, we're talking about art for art's sake the strict autonomy of art and aesthetics. So, getting started. This idea of art for art's sake can be pretty well summed up through the British aesthetic movement of the late 1800s. These guys were committed to the pursuit of beauty. They claimed art had declined in an era of utility and rationalism and deserved to be judged on its own terms alone. Is it beautiful? Is it ugly? What is the sensation of it? If you're a big nerd, I know what you're thinking. I can't possibly go on without mentioning a certain 18th century German philosopher, a certain Immanuel Kant. This whole aesthetics business is pretty ancient, really, but we love to reference Kant's 1790 work, The Critique of Judgment. He wrote about art for art's sake before it was cool, saying content and subject matter and other external things were all irrelevant. Art doesn't have to justify its reason for existing. It's art. How we appreciate and criticize it is based in the aesthetic pleasure and delight derived, totally separate from the rest of the world. There is, of course, a big existing debate on whether or not this view of art is a viable one, what Kant was really getting at. There are a ton of arguments for and against autonomy, getting into transcendent value and moral implication and social relations, and there are a ton of other theories of aesthetics that are instead relational and process-based. It goes on. For a while. And if you want to jump into that rabbit hole, go for it. Be my guest. But Kant obviously wasn't writing about the post-1960s public art, and I'm not trying to perfectly relate his work to a couple 21st century bits. But the discussion is interesting, and I'm just curious about what happens when we do try to look at public art in this strictly autonomous way. So let me get into a little story for you. When I first visited the University of Edinburgh two years ago, I stumbled upon a little pixelated book and a rhino head. 
two sculptures pretty near each other, pretty small. The book is on a little half-wall thing people sit on a lot. The rhino on the side of the building attached to that bench stage thing, pretty high up. I adored these works. I thought they were so neat, and I had no clue what the deal was with them. I just liked them. They gave me that type of aesthetic delight. Being honest, the reason I liked them was mostly because I thought there was no story to know, that they were just there, so it wasn't a perfectly, strictly aesthetic admiration, more a I-like-quirky-things admiration. But for argument's sake, let's say it was strictly aesthetic. Let's say I was in love with the beauty of the individual sculptures, and that was all that mattered. Let's say I thought you could put the book in a white-walled gallery, and I'd love it just the same. Now, that's kind of a big issue. That's kind of a problem. The whole definition has now completely changed. So much of the work was lost. That book doesn't belong in a gallery. It's site-specific public art. It belongs at that exact location where it is and nowhere else. That's the point of site-specific, that the location matters. What I was doing, looking at Byte as completely autonomous, just thinking it was pretty, was picking it up and placing it in a vacuum. It feels kind of violent in a way, tearing it away from what it was. But this was also before I even knew about site-specific public art, before I thought about looking at the full picture, at the full space. If all site-specificity came from the story of the artwork and the history of the space, then yeah, take all that out, look at it the way I was looking at it, and it's not site-specific anymore. It's completely altered. It's kind of lost. It's not public art. But being connected to a location doesn't have to be through meaning and history. Site specificity means the artwork is using and responding to the environment, and that could be just the material and artistic bits of the location. It could be only concerned with physical environment and not with the social, historical, cultural environment. Site specificity can be and often is through aesthetics. If I were to look at the book again, think a bit more about it, maybe the material it's made of contrasts well with the material it sits on, and the bolts nearby reflect a similar shine, and the geometric aspects of the book, the angle it sits on, well, that makes so much sense with the angle of the building and the surrounding structure. Actually, maybe it would be very different in a gallery. Maybe the book needed to be out there, not because of a deeper meaning that I was missing, but because aesthetically, the environment is part of it and it part of the environment. And that's the specific that is really crucial, really matters in contemporary public art, that you are creating the whole space, so you're part of it, inseparable. If removed from the location, a site-specific work loses all or pretty substantial part of itself, because there's no frame to mark where the work ends and space begins. So to remove the work is kind of to destroy it. But that's talking more about removing the physical space than removing the social history. We don't have to give up location and site specificity if we don't want a story. We can look at public art for art's sake, look at it as autonomous, and not completely destroy it, as long as we're also looking at the space. So we can show up without the story. But do we want to? Two years after first discovering the little book and the rhino head, I finally found out what they were. The book is called Bite, or The Haynes Nano Stage, by David Forsyth, and The Rhino Head by William Darrell, both from 2012, both with a pretty connected story. As a newcomer to this information, I'll have someone else explain it for you. So my name is Kasia Gokowska, I'm the Communications and Outreach Manager for the School of Informatics, University of Edinburgh. And yes, I'm self-proclaimed Bite book enthusiast probably in general public art enthusiasts and um, collaborations between art and science enthusiasts as well. So um, the story probably actually starts in 2011 when Edinburgh College of Art and University of Edinburgh merged. And um, 
to mark the occasion. Uh, I think the, the, the university commissioned uh, some pieces of public artwork, and two of them were installed around School of Informatics, mostly because before, years before the, the building was um, built in that place, uh, there used to be a bookshop uh, called the Paperback Bookshop, and it was owned by Jim Haynes, who's a very well-known figure in Edinburgh, and probably not just in Edinburgh, he lives in Paris right now. So there were two pieces. One of them is the rhino head, which is on the side of the building, um, and the other one was the, the bite book, um, which I actually probably went past it many times, and until I started working in informatics, I didn't actually look at it twice, and I didn't know what it was. I, I honestly didn't think it had anything to do with the bookshop. I, I looked at how it looks and thought, this is something to do with informatics. And then I, I started working in informatics, and I started reading about it, and I realized that it actually combines the history of the building with you know, the, the, the present. Um, so um, the, the bite book... Um, I quite like the idea because it does have many layers to it, and I think it's more than two. It actually is literature, arts, and science. So it is a book, but it also looks a bit like, you know, um, computer memory. Um, it was supposed to be having actually <laughs> listened to what the artist had to say about it. It was uh, supposed to be a book, and it's made of sheets, and it, you know, and it has some stuff inside as well that if you ever wanted to look inside, you could actually read them, although I don't think we'll ever want to do it. <laughs> so yeah, it is a book, but it also um, is supposed to depict the, the research in the actual building of the informatics forum. There's, there's two things. One of them is on and off switch, uh, you know, like the switch that you have on any electrical equipment. Yeah. So that's inside. Um, and the other thing is that on the, some of the sheets, there's a poem written by the, the sculpture himself, and I'm sure that one, I know that there's a video about it commissioned because it. Once it's out, we will all be able to hear the poem, because nobody other than the artist has actually seen um, the poem. Wow. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. That's, that's that I neat. actually love, I, I actually keep telling people in the building, um, there's quite a few people in, in the building who are interested in, in arts in general, mm -hmm. and those two pieces of arts as well. And I keep telling people, maybe I shouldn't, but I keep telling them there's a poem inside. Did you know there's a poem inside? It's, it's really exciting. Let me tell you a bit more about Jim Haynes, why he's so well-known. Jim Haynes was born in Louisiana in 1933, so he's an American who ended up in Scotland at the University of Edinburgh at the age of 23. So, coincidentally, same. But getting on. He set up the bookshop and gallery, went on to found and co-found writers' conferences, drama conferences, theaters, festivals, papers... He moved from Edinburgh to London, then Paris, and just does a ton of stuff. The bookshop, which he says was Britain's first paperback-only bookshop, had a stuffed rhinoceros head on the pavement outside, and it closed down when he lost the premises to the university. As I mentioned, the truth of my first experience with the rhino head wasn't one purely based in aesthetics. I just liked having a weird, random thing to pass by daily. I didn't want an explanation. Now having one for both Bite and the Rhino Head, and knowing how I felt about learning it, I wanted to ask Cassia her thoughts on having context. The reason I also really want to talk to you about, about Bite was because, so I was in Edinburgh two years ago mm -hmm. as a study abroad student, and the Rhino Head was my absolute 
favorite thing <laughs> on campus, but it was mainly because I had no idea that it had a purpose. Because the plaque is on the ground. Yeah. Um, and so I'd always pass by it, and I'm like, how funky, how quirky <laughs> that there's just a rhino head up there for no reason. Um, and when I found out about the bookshop, I was almost sad about it mm-hmm. because it took away this like funky, mysterious mm-hmm. character to it. Um, but it seems like with a bite, a lot of the kind of love for it and yeah. enthusiasm comes from its very meaningful connection to yeah. informatics. And so, yeah, I think these are two different things because even though I think the the rhino head was supposed to be um, some kind of homage to the bookshop. And that was that's quite you know um, almost literal depiction of what was there. Whereas the buy book, there's more layers of, I mean even knowing what's inside and knowing the history of the book and knowing Davies the artist's intentions, it still doesn't take anything away. It I think it creates even more of you know inspiration, um, well definitely to myself. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I think that that sort of I'm I'm I think I'm trying to answer the question that you didn't ask whether is it better to know right. um, the history behind or the context behind uh, the artwork or well or, or not it depends in the case of Rhino Head it probably is not <laughs> worth it to be honest although I quite like I you know I have a degree in journalism so to me the investigation, I would keep on investigating until I found out what it actually meant. And then it would be very satisfying to right. know that I found it out. Whereas with the bite book, it's completely different. That's the, the whole fun is trying to find more and more layers of meaning to, to it. And, and, there's, and there's a meaning in everything with, when it comes to the bite book. There's the shape and there's the, the sheets of metal. Um, and, you know, where it's actually located, that is so, sort of almost on the edge um, yeah, I think the, the, the bite book is far more interesting to investigate because you, you never get there. There's no answers, you know, more answers create more questions when you think about the bite book. And remember Kenny Hunter from the last episode? Well, I also asked him about this, about making art with meaning and story, and if it's better for people to have it, to have the story itself. What if the viewer doesn't know the local social history? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean... In a city like London, it's so metropolitan, it'd be unusual for everybody to understand the social history of Spitalfields. I think if the artist sets out to illustrate social history, though, then they're not really being a real artist in a way. Do you know what I mean, I think I think the work's got to come out of an engagement with the site, but it also has to be a good artwork, first and foremost. Or you failed. I mean, you, you could you could argue that if if all it does is address social history and excite, it can it can fail um, at the first hurdle because if it doesn't engage people, and they don't want to look at it, don't feel they want to spend their time looking at it, then uh, or asking questions about it, then it's kind of fallen at the first hurdle in a way. Um, some things are quite self-evident, like I did a, a, a sculpture of a calf um, outside a former um, slaughterhouse meat market in Glasgow. So most people would know that was, you could see from the gates it was a, new, a retained facade again and there was cattle. But arguably there's probably people who don't know that. But I mean, how obvious can you make it? You know, there's a pub on a corner called the Drovers. 
So if you know a little bit about the history of the place, you'll understand why the calf that's walking mm -hmm. through the gates of the old slaughterhouse is there. Um, but I think I think that there's a there's a part of the, the works if it's going to work well it's going to, there's going to be an element of ownership so anybody coming into that neighbourhood will say somebody will say what's that thing there what's that doing there and the the person who lives there knows the history etc would be there to expand on that so what I'm saying is say if you just walked off a, off a bus from Barcelona yeah you could look at it and just hopefully enjoy it as a compelling or engaging object and hopefully at that level of engagement with Dinesh sort of make you ask what is that uh, doing there or, or f just create further engagement because um, I think being absolutely transparently uh, understandable at first contact could be quite a kind of really limit the scope of the artist, what they might do, how they might engage with it. Mm -hmm. But I think you get a sense of it. I think in this, after a few quick questions, you would probably get a really good sense of how successful that artist's engagement had been. Um, but yeah, I think art is a conversation anyway, most of the time. Like I said, whether you like a story or not is based on preference and dependent on the art and what the story is. But good art makes you want to know. It engages with the environment first, with you, and then prompts conversation and questioning. So it's alright to not know. And it's kinda great, I think. You don't have to know everything about a piece of art, especially not a piece of public art, to appreciate it. It's outside of the gallery for a reason. And if it's successful art, it'll make you want to know, to ask, to discuss it. Oh, I should mention, there is another reason Cassie was so interested in the bite book. Uh, so, six or seven years ago, I was queuing um, before a performance uh, during the Edinburgh Fringe. And there was a guy standing uh, just behind me who looked a bit like a Trump. And he started talking to me. Um, and, and he was a really lovely, lovely guy, an elderly man, uh, great American. Um, and I thought, oh, awesome, very interested in Eastern Europe, and, you know, started asking me, oh, I recognize your accent, are you from Eastern Europe, blah, blah. And then the day after, I was at the book festival, <laughs> and the same guy was queuing with me, and he gave me a, a note saying, uh, this is my website, uh, if you're ever in Paris, visit me. And I went home, looked at it, and it was Jim Haynes <laughs> himself, never visited in Paris, because I always thought, well, that's probably... Although, that's the way it works, you know, he's, he has his... Um, a Parisian, I don't know if he's still running it because he's in his 80s now, but uh, <clears throat> he has his Parisian dinners on Sundays and you just send him an email saying, uh, I'm coming to your dinner, I'm vegetarian and I don't eat this and that, aubergines, uh, please cook for me. And he cooks for you, come over, there's usually a number of people there, you can network and, you know, meet some artsy <laughs> characters. Uh, and, you know, I, an absolutely lovely man, so having this experience and then working in informatics and seeing those two pieces of artwork and knowing that this is exactly where his bookshop was. Well, I think that it is self-explanatory why I'm, you know, a big fan of those two pieces of artwork. I know. <laughs> I know. It's, it's just, I think this is the, 
this is the type of thing that happens to you in Edinburgh. It doesn't just mm-hmm. happen to me. It happens to it's anyone. You just go around and you meet people, especially in August. August is oh, yeah. uh, completely mental when it comes to that. And I think August is... I've learned that when you walk down the street in August and you see someone and you think, you look like... No, that's them. <laughs> it really is them. <laughs> this is really them because anybody can come. A lot of people who are in any type of performing arts are coming to Edinburgh and either performing or just, you know, attending. Right. So, no, this, uh, this is just an absolute coincidence. But, yeah. yeah, just, you know. Also the fact that I just like reading books. Yeah. <laughs> and you kind of, you know, it, it's a sort of a circle. Yeah, yeah. There's just a lot yeah. of different connections. Now I want to talk about things that we didn't just imagine separated from the site, but we literally moved around and changed their location. First, think about how badly we want art to stay what it was. We spend so much energy conserving and preserving. We want to know what it was at first original intention, and in public art, that's first location. So perhaps you can already imagine it's no casual thing to just move it around. We'll start with Parthenope and Egeria, both by Eduardo Palazzi. These two are kind of hard to describe. They're two figures, kind of robot-looking. They're built out of blocks of abstract and real shapes, spheres, cubes, and hands and feet. While Parthenope stands upright, Egeria balances on its head. They're fairly representative of Palazzi's style and sculpture, so if you're familiar with anything else of his giant feet in parks and whatnot, then you could probably imagine what these guys look like in your head. They were unveiled outside the Michael Swan building at King's Buildings Campus in 1997. And then, in May of 2017, they were moved. It's not really a big story here. Some renovation needed to happen, and they were in the way. So they got put over by the Murray Library, in a little grassy bit, safe. Ajir is still to the left, and Parthenope on the right. Still, they were moved from where they were meant to be. So can we just plop them right back when the work is done? Not so easily. Because now people like them where they are. They work. The removal and relocation of these statues presents an interesting question, I find. What if the community likes their site-specific art better at a different site? Or it's just safer, easier to preserve something elsewhere? Isn't that aspect of collaboration just as important? Or are they completely altered now, destroyed until returned back to their original place? When you change location, you change a lot and it gets confusing and puzzling, and it can spark some pretty strong opinions on whether things should be returned or not. We don't have to be a contemporary art piece to cause such commotion. The last two works I'm going to talk about are from the 19th century, and are way out of town. Way down by the Easterbush Veterinary Campus. But they used to be right in the city center. I decided to take the nearly hour-long bus trip to see them in their new homes. I also missed my stop, so I had to take a bit of a walk as well. My first visit was to the 1883 statue of William Dick, completed by John Rind. William Dick, founder of what is now the Royal Dick School of Veterinary Studies. The school moved around a bit and moved down to Easter Bush just recently in 2011 when the teaching building was completed. Things had been going on at Easter Bush for a while, of course, There was large animal teaching since 1947, a field station and center for tropical medicine there in 1962. 
the Hospital for Small Animals since 1999, and the Equine Hospital finished in 2009. But until 2011, a lot of teaching happened in the city in Summer Hall, which is now an arts complex that has a pretty, pretty fun escape room, I'd say. The statue of William Dick used to be at Summer Hall. It was pretty straightforward public art, art in a public place. The stuff we typically think of, the founder of the school sitting outside the school with a horse hoof in his hand, big chair, big robes. But it's now inside the new teaching building, carried over along with a ton of other artworks and even stained glass windows. I don't really know what to make of this. It's just a bit odd, because we have another situation of a place technically public. Anyone can go see him if they sign in, but it's certainly no central hub of the city, and anyway, he was made for a totally, completely different site, made for outside Summer Hall. He's a long way from home. So what do we make of it? Of a really clearly public artwork getting moved far away and inside? Still public art? More than just presenting a confusing puzzle of definitions, moving around public art can bring real practical issues. We just really, really do not like losing art, and sometimes that can be a bit of a problem. Before Summer Hall, the vet school was located at Clyde Street, which has since been demolished, and sitting on top of the Clyde Street building was a recumbent horse, or startled horse rising, set up there in 1833. It's actually the oldest piece in our collection of public art. Since then, this poor startled boy has been moved so many times, from Clyde Street roof to a roof on Summer Hall in 1916, then a different Summer Hall roof in 1971, and finally in 2003 to Easter Bush, where he doesn't even have a roof anymore, just a little spot next to a bush in the dirt. And apparently his face coming up from behind that bush kind of spooks the actual horses sometimes. All this movement, naturally, has taken a toll on the statue and has really changed his purpose. Viewing something that's sitting on top of a building is real different than when it's just on the ground. The whole perspective is off from what it originally was, the whole experience wrong. And where he is feels awkward, like we kind of forgot about him. Since the work was originally on top of a building, it doesn't have the right base or plinth for it to be sitting on the ground. He's oddly low and kind of in the dirt. He's getting moved again even, to a new structure at Easterbush. And not to a roof this time, but thankfully on a proper foundation. Public art is so, so tied to where it's put down or comes up from. And when you try and separate those things, the art and the environment, you get issues, problems, some of them really practical and physical. It's not like studio-made pieces that get moved from exhibition to exhibition that are self-contained in a frame or on a pedestal. And you know, it's okay to not know the meaning of a work, but hopefully the temptation to engage is there. Startled Horse Rising comes back in episode 4 when we talk more about conservation and our real attachment to permanence. Next time, though, it's about commissioning, putting up artwork, and who gets paid. The Collection Public Art Podcast is a production of the University of Edinburgh and the Center for Research Collections. It is written and produced by me, Rexandra Bajak, executive producer, University of Edinburgh Art Collection. Music by local composer Joseph Stevenson. If you'd like to know more about these items and other items in the collection, please visit the university's collection website at collections.ed.ac.uk. Better yet, you can see these items online at images.is.ed.ac.uk or, of course, out and around the university. My name is Roxandra, and as always, thank you for stopping by the collection. 
This podcast is supported by the University of Edinburgh's main library, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary, where connections come alive. Share your favorite memories through text, photos, and or video of your time at the library by tagging at edunilibraries using the hashtag UOELib50 on Facebook and Instagram.